Good morning, church. We are continuing in our series, Jesus Works Through the Gospel of Matthew. Chapters are going to be starting in chapter, or verse 14, chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible this morning, would you raise your hand? we got ushers in the back. would love to get you a copy of God's Word. Uh, as they're passing that out, I'd love to get you kind of caught up. We have been, as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we went through, uh, we took a whole series and went through the Sermon on the Mount, which is like the gold standard of the Christian life. Now we've been going through chapters 8, and today we're in chapter 9, and Jesus has been just the fast-paced ministry. If you've been just tracking with us from week to week, it's hard to catch, but um, chapter 8 and chapter 9, Jesus is going around preaching and healing and teaching, and every time he gets done healing someone here, he's already getting interrupted to heal someone or teach or speak truth into someone over here, and we're going to see that today. So if you haven't caught that, go back and read chapter 8 and chapter 9 as homework this week, and you'll see what I mean. Last week, Pastor Derek did a great job teaching about how Jesus um, called um, Matthew, the tax collector, to himself. And they went and they, they had lunch together. Jesus was eating with tax collectors and the Pharisees were offended. The Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Jesus, how can you eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus just got done offending the Pharisees and don't worry, he's not done. Okay, that's what we're going to see here today. So look at it with me, um, starting verse 14. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Here's what it says. The disciples of John came to him saying, why do, we the Pharisee and, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So I want to stop right there. So Jesus is already eating with the tax collectors. He has the Pharisees on one side saying, Jesus how can you be eating with these tax collectors, these sinners, these traitors to Israel? And in the same room, then disciples of John go, Jesus, how can you be eating at all? And so I have titled this section, this section is titled, Are You Even Religious? The label for this section, Are You Even Religious? My surfer friends, Are You Even Religious, Bro? Right? That's what I always hear in my head. Anyway, so are you even religious? And so what the Pharisees were saying is, Jesus, how could you disgrace yourself and, and support the sinners, the tax collectors, by eating with them? The disciples of John, of John who they, they were no joke. They knew their stuff. They knew the scriptures. That, that's why they were disciples of John. They saw John as the prophet that was bringing, leading the way, preparing the way for the Messiah. These are the guys who kick-started Jesus' ministry. They, the, they were the ones helping John baptize out in the wilderness, and they baptized Jesus, and that was his inauguration as he's going in and starting ministry, and now they're coming to Jesus and going, Jesus, you, you're saying all these, this weird stuff, and you're, you're not doing anything that the Messiah is supposed to do. You're not fitting in the box of the Messiah, because in their minds... The Messiah was this political figure, someone who's coming to free them from the Romans, to, to give them their kingdom of God back and to judge everyone else. And what Jesus is saying is, no, that's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not here for that. And so the disciples of John are coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, what are you doing? Why, why aren't you fasting? And, and this, this question brings a lot of connotations and baggage with it. Okay, It's not just a, a simple question because in that day, the Jews were required to fast one day a year, the Day of Atonement. One day a year. If you considered yourself religious, 
you fasted at least two to three times a week. And so they're coming to Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, we fast, the, the Pharisees fast, but you, really, you and your disciples don't fast. And, and the emphasis is how it's said is, really, you don't fast at all. It's not like you're not, you didn't just mess up and, and eat with the sinners here or the tax collectors. You never fast, Jesus. What, what is going on? And, and we even see kind of the, the murmuring start. If you know in chapter 11 in the Gospel of Matthew, word gets back to John, who's already in prison, of what Jesus is saying and doing. And John sends back a message to Jesus saying, Jesus, are you really the Messiah that we thought you were? Or do we need to look for someone else? And so this is the start of those rumblings of, Jesus, are you really who we, we thought you were? Are you, are you the Messiah that has come to free us? Uh, but before we jump all over the disciples of John, what is going on here is, is deeply embedded in all of us. Um, I saw it uh, not too long ago. Recently, I had the opportunity to go back to Washington, D.C. Uh, for a conference, and we had a little free time, so we got to go to some of the Smithsonian museums. Have any of you ever visited the Smithsonian? Amazing. We went to the Smithsonian of American History. It is an incredible museum. And when you walk in, you are just blown away, especially in the last 100, 150 years, the innovation and the things that as a country we have just been able to do and to create. I, I was taken back by how much time, effort, resources have been put into developing products and how to sell those products to all of us. There is an entire floor, not just a wing. There is an entire floor of enterprise talking about all the products that we've created and how we've sold them to all of us. And they've put eras on different, different time periods. So right after World War II, from 1940 to 1970 is considered the consumer era. And you walk in and you see all these things that have been sold to us. Man, we were loving our KFC and McDonald's back in the day. Man, they, they, and Mr. Peanut. So they, they, they worked really hard how to sell us, right? Where's the beef, right? The, the, all these things, how to sell us. And you, you really know the heartstrings of a society by what it purchases, right? And how we were sold those things to purchase. Because if we're willing not only to use our time on them, but to spend money, right? If you're going to sell things to an innocent society, how are you going to sell a product to it? Through innocence. If, you're, if you have a violent society, how are you going to sell something to that society? Through violence. And so it was just fascinating. So 1940, 1970, consumer area. We, we, we have this need and we, just, we fill it by things, by, by houses, by cars, by, by clothes. Whatever we can get a hold of, we buy and purchase because enough isn't enough. Big isn't big enough. Right? And so we get to 1980 and they create a whole new era. And this era... It's called the global era. And through the internet and innovations, we've, we've been able to take down the boundaries of, of the world. Basically, the world is flat, right? And we have goods and services traded across borders with, with ease. And, and I was taken back by how it described this era. It's 1980 to present. So we are currently living in it. And I don't know if you can see it very well, but I have it. I'm going to read it to you. And this is the circled part. This is what it says. It says, we have sought solutions through innovations. Society became increasingly wired as the pace of life increased. So 
from 1940 to 1970, we, we were collecting things. And, and now that we've realized that's not really the answer, now it's all about how, how innovative we can be, how efficient we can do it, how fast we can do it. And we, we're going from collecting things to how fast we can do, how many boxes we can check, how many points we can rack up. And so we've gone from collecting things to now just doing, and the pace of life is, is just so incredibly fast. And we bring that here to church, into our Christian life. We bring that very same mentality here that we need to be more innovative in our, in our walk with Jesus. We need to be more productive. We need, we need to do, and you can kind of fall into two camps, right? We have people here at church who, you know, they're, they're Christians and, and they come here and they come to church on Sunday morning and then they, they go to Bible study after church and then on Monday they, they go to Bible study Monday night and then Tuesday there's Tuesday night prayer and then, and then Wednesday there's another Bible study and then Thursday there's, and you, you see where I'm going with this. I've even spoken to someone and they said, oh, I have every night I have a Bible study except Thursday night. I just need to find one for Thursday night. It's like, well, that's not the purpose. And you guess not really the purpose of that. You, and you can usually identify them. Um, you know, m- most of the time they're wearing like a Christian shirt with a Christian logo or a saying on it. They're they wearing the WWJD bracelets probably all the way up their arm. The car probably has Christian bumper, bumper stickers all over it, right? You, you, you kind of get the idea. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is that we are so busy, and I think most of us fall more towards this side is we are so busy outside of these walls. When we leave church, we already have whatever's planned next. If we don't get out of here right at 1030, then you're late, right? And so we are so busy once we leave these walls that we, we just put church as that box. And if I just check that box or if I just do it right, if I'm at church on time and I go to church, if I make it to church at all and I check it off and then I, I leave, I'm done, I've done that, I'm complete. Now I can go on and be more efficient wherever I'm, I'm, I need to go next, And so we kind of have these two ends of the spectrum. And this is where the disciples of John are coming to Jesus saying, hey, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you checking more boxes? Why aren't you being religious enough? Are are you even religious? And Jesus says, you know, this, it's not about checking boxes. It's not about doing the right thing in the right order. And he gives us a new way. He gives us a new way. Look at verse 16 or 15 with me. Verse 15, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So Jesus paints this picture that he is the bridegroom, which they would have caught because God was, Yahweh was the bridegroom of the old covenant. Now Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom of the new covenant, bringing in a new order. He's come to fulfill the law, but he's bringing in something new and he is here. And so when the bridegroom is with him, his his bridal party, the best men aren't to be fasting. He's here on earth just a blip. Right now is the time where they're supposed to be not fasting, but feasting and celebrating and leading us all in this celebration. They they aren't just guests. They, They are the ones that are helping us do the celebrating. I mean, all of us have been to like a party or a wedding or maybe a holiday where there's lots of food and there's someone who's either on a diet or fasting or doing something. And it's kind of a wet blanket on the party, isn't it? Uh, here's a story about Pastor Ty. Pastor Ty has been, he was a reservist in the Air Force for I think 34 years, okay? And every year he had to pass a physical. That physical always seemed to land the Monday after Thanksgiving, 
So as you can guess, the, the measurements and the weight requirements and the, and the physical tests for the military, you have to be superhuman to get a high score. So anyway, every year he always felt like he needed to get in shape. And so on Thanksgiving, that, that fourth Thursday of November, what do you think he was doing? Was he feasting or fasting? He was fasting. And if you know him well, you know that he has one, his kryptonite is, he has this one weakness. It's Haagen-Dazs coffee ice cream. And so every time he would be fasting, we would always get like a pint of Haagen-Dazs coffee ice cream and just, just set it near him. Just to tease him. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, no, right now is not the time to be fasting. It's the time to be feasting. And so the, what begs the question is, and then what are the disciples, what are they celebrating? What are they celebrating? So are they just celebrating Jesus? Well, yes, they are celebrating Jesus. But like when any of us go to a wedding, we, we are celebrating the couple that is getting married. But we're celebrating so much more than just those two people. We're, we're celebrating the vows that they're going to be saying to one another. We're celebrating the new family that's being united and created. We're celebrating, hopefully, the many years to come of, of happiness and joy and serving Jesus together. Right? There's a lot going on that's being celebrated, and that's exactly what's happening here. The disciples are to be celebrating Jesus because he's only there like that three years. But they're also going to be celebrating what he's bringing, what he's, what he's starting. And Jesus describes that in verse 16. So no one, puts, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts and the, and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So when you first time you read that, you're like, what in the heck is Jesus talking about? Unshrunk cloth and wineskins. To, to briefly explain it, with the unshrunk cloth, we all kind of understand that when you first, let's say you buy a brand new sweatshirt, and the first time you put on that sweatshirt, it is the most comfortable, snuggly sweatshirt. You just want to go take a nap in it, right? The first time you watch it, wash it, what happens? It becomes as stiff as a cardboard box, doesn't it? It's never the same. When Camden and I were first married, we didn't have a lot of money, so I'd buy cheap T-shirts from Target or Walmart, and I would wear it, and it'd fit great. I always needed to get longer shirts just because I have a long torso, and I would wash it and dry it, put it in the dryer one time, what would happen? It would shrink this way and expand this way. I look like a boxy Britney Spears showing my, cleave, you know, my midriff walking around. And the same thing is here with unshrunk cloth that's going to change. You have an old garment that has a tear. You put that unshrunk patch over it and you sew it on. As soon as it shrinks, it's going to create tension and it's going to rip the old and it's going to just make the tear even worse. With the wineskins, the wineskins, wine wine used to be put into wineskins, which was a hide from an animal. Thank goodness we don't put nice wine into that anymore. right? And they would put it in and the skin would expand as the wine ferments. And old wineskins that had already gone through this process were brittle. They were inelastic. So you'd put in new wine into old wineskins, and it being inelastic, all of a sudden it would burst, it would give out, and the wine would be spilled, and it would all be destroyed. So what Jesus is saying, he hasn't just come to put a new patch into the old order. He isn't come just to, to put his new, wines, his new wine into old wineskin just to, to make it better. He's coming to replace it. He's to fulfill the law, but also to replace what is righteous. Last week, uh, Pastor Derek talked about what righteous is. It's just our right, but being right before God. And what Jesus is saying, he's coming to change it. 
He's coming to see, change what righteousness even is. And this is a bold statement. And we all understand this. If Let's say I have a typewriter. Now I know most of you are going, hey, how does he even know what a typewriter is? Remember, I was at the Smithsonian last week. So, <laughs> so let's say you have a typewriter, okay? Now and typewriters are, are word processors, right? You're creating a document. Now, with the creation of the computer for a word processor, do you just take a screen from a computer and put it right on top of the typewriter and then keep typing? No, what have we done? We've taken that typewriter and we've put it on our shelves, and now you find them in the Smithsonian antique stores, right? We totally get rid of the typewriter, and now we just have our computers. And it does the same thing and even more, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying, is he has not come to just put a patch on the old way. He has come to give us a new way, new righteousness, his righteousness. And so what, it, what is important about this is when he, what he's saying here, or what is important for us to know is, you know what, this is a new way, the new covenant. And that's why it is important for us to even study the old covenant, the, the old testament, because we see the progression that, that we have a God who lovingly created a covenant, covenant with his people and God kept his side of, the, side of the bargain. But guess who didn't? Us. We, we were given the beautiful, perfect, righteous law, and we could never meet up to that standard, no matter how hard we tried, no matter how much we wanted to. We never could, could, could get to that level. And finally, God, in his grace, said, you know, I'm going to create a new covenant. And he talks about this. This is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 8. In Hebrews chapter 8, it says this. This is beautiful. Starting verse 6, it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he meditates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So if we hadn't messed it up, there would have been no reason for Jesus to bring us a new righteousness, a new Order. It continues on, and it quotes directly from Jeremiah 31, 31. You should go look it up. It's, it's beautiful. And this is what, as it continues on, this is what it says. For he finds fault with them being us when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and bring, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now that was originally written over 600 years before Jesus. And this is what Jesus is saying he's doing. He's, the new righteousness is the law will be in our minds and written on to our hearts. This is, I mean, this is radical stuff. The Pharisees, if they were still listening, and, and John's disciples would have been like, are you crazy? No wonder why John's disciples came back later and said, are you really the Messiah? Are you the one that we had talked about, the one that we, we thought you were? Are you who we say you are? So this is, this is crazy stuff. So the question is, are you religious? Yes. But more importantly, we are righteous because of Jesus. Are we religious? Yes. But more importantly, we are righteous because of Jesus. So my second, second section, I, I've labeled it a desperate heart for Jesus. A desperate heart 
for Jesus. If it, it's not about keeping the rules like Jesus has already talked, told us it, or completing a, a certain you know, spiritual devotions or, or disciplines in the, in the right order. It's about maintaining and cultivating a desperate heart for Jesus. And how I'm using that word desperate is just like we normally do. It kind of has a sense of hopelessness if, right? We, we kind of understand this where my, we have desperate lungs for oxygen, Right? Stay under the water long enough, and what happens? You will use every ounce of power and might to get to the surface to get, to get air. My stomach is desperate for food. Maybe that's why I'm not very good at fasting. Right? Because we get out of church, and it's lunchtime, and I need some lunch. Because we need food to sustain ourselves. We have hearts that are the same way. They are desperate for something. And what Jesus is saying is we need to have desperate hearts for himself, for Jesus And if you're new around here or, or you've been here a long time, if, if you are a Christian or, or you, you consider yourself questioning or you're not a Christian, I, I would ask you to ask yourself this question. What is your heart desperate for this morning? What is your heart desperate for? What, what, when, you, when you hear that song, you can have all this world but give me Jesus, if you take out the Jesus part, what would you, if you answered it honestly, if your heart answered for you, what would you put there? You can have all this world but give me and we all have something that we, we are tempted to put in there. That we, we would, without Jesus, we would fill in very quickly. And it's easy to sometimes go towards that. And everyone has this thing that they would, they would place in there. And as Christians, we are saying, Lord, you can have all this world. You can take everything from me, but give me Jesus. It, for me, it's tempting to say, but give me my family. Uh, but maybe give me my house, maybe give me my job or, or my respect or my, how I'm seen as a citizen. There are so many things that are it's so easily just placed in there instead of Jesus. And what Jesus is saying, we need to cultivate this desperate heart for Jesus. In everything we do, our heart needs to groan. It needs to cry out for Jesus to be in all of our, our social settings and, and, and everywhere we go and what and everything that we participate in. So this is the central message that a desperate heart for Jesus is greater than religious, rigid rule following. A desperate heart for Jesus is so much greater than rigid, religious rule following. And, and we, under, we hear it, and yes, we know it, but sometimes we don't practice it. We, we like our rigid rules. I mean, if you look back through history, my grandparents, a rule that they placed on themselves, they never went to the movies, right? That's not in the Bible, right? They never went to the movies. And if, if you went to the movies, are they a Christian? That's exactly what's going on here. John's saying, well, why aren't you fasting? The fasting wasn't a rule that they were supposed to keep. Right? If it wasn't going to the movies, it was what? Dancing. Because dancing led to some other things. There better be some room for the Holy Spirit. Because if you're caught dancing, oh, you might not be a Christian. And so adding rules upon the, the book that we have, the, the Bible, God's word, only brings us into these certain situations where it's confusing. We aren't, we aren't supposed to add rules on, on top of rules. The Bible, God's word, is already hard enough to follow. But when we understand what, what the Old Testament and what God has been doing through his plan and, and what Jesus has been doing and bringing us his righteousness and we have that desperate, we're cultivating that desperate heart for Jesus, God's word reads much more like a love letter than a book of rules. His word reads like a love letter in which he, he cares for us, he desires us, he, he wants us to himself. 
Following in this passage, starting verse 17, we have given two examples of people who are desperate, who have a desperate heart for Jesus. And we don't have time to read it because we're, we're running short of time. So I'll tell you, you'll have to go back and read it. And if you want the extended version, go read Mark chapter 5. So the first, like I said, Matthew chapter 8 and 9, it's very fast paced, right? Jesus is healing this guy here and he's not even done. He's already being interrupted to go heal or teach somewhere else. And so we have the Pharisees who just asked Jesus, why are you, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And then right after we have um, John's disciples saying, why, why are you even eating at all? And now I, in my mind, I see the back door just, just open up. And we have this man named Jairus, who's a synagogue leader, burst into the house and he comes comes to Jesus and Jesus, my daughter, she's dying and she will die unless you see her. Please come see her. Now Jairus was a synagogue ruler. He was putting everything on the line. Remember the Pharisees are sitting right here just questioning Jesus. And so he's putting his family, he's putting his job, he's putting his reputation, he's putting everything on the line. And so Jesus agrees to go with him. And so they get up and Jesus, all his disciples and everyone who's around him gets up and they go and it says they're going in a crowd and they're walking to Jairus' house and there's a woman, a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And it's, the scripture says that she has spent all her money and resources on physicians to try to make her better. I don't even want to imagine what they were trying to do in that day and age to heal her, right? Because they didn't have modern medicine, right? And so she is at the end of a rope and in in that time, if you were bleeding, you were considered unclean. And so for the past 12 years, not only has she spent all of her resources in trying to be healed, she has probably been in solitude for most of that time. And so, to think, so she thinks, you know what, as long as I can touch the cloak of Jesus, maybe then he will heal me. Maybe it will be healed. And she's putting everything on the line because if she touches Jesus, then he's unclean. So Jesus is walking with his huge entourage, and they're all probably bumping into him. It says in, in a huge crowd, and all of a sudden, the, the woman dives and touches the edge of his cloak. And Jesus, you know, being bumped, he says, someone touched me. And I'm sure Jesus' disciples were like, well, a lot of people are touching you. What are you talking about? You're being bumped into. And no, this is different. And Jesus turns to this woman and says, did you touch me? And the scripture says, with fear and trembling, because she knew what was on the line. I said, yes. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And so Jesus then continues to Jairus' house, and he gets there, and they're already starting the mourning process. They have paid mourners. The dirge has started, and Jesus walks up, and he goes, why are you wailing? And they say, because his daughter has died. And Jesus says, no, she hasn't died. She's just sleeping. And they start making fun of him. And so he, he goes in the house. He doesn't let anyone else in the house. And he goes in, and he goes to her, and you can just hear when you're reading it in the book, you can hear the care and concern he has for her. He says, he grabs her by the hand and he pulls her up and he says, rise and be healed. And she lifts. So we have these two examples, Jairus and the, this lady who's been sick for 12 years, that they put everything on the line because they are so desperate. They have nowhere else to turn. And they say, Jesus, you can have, take everything, like, get, you can take this world, but give me Jesus. And in the same way, we need to do the exact same thing with our hearts. Lord, you, know, you have all this world, but give me Jesus. Now, a question that kind of flows out of this that I think is, should be convicting to all of us is going back to the fasting thing. Well, does that mean that I need to fast? And it's, it's more than fasting. It's any spiritual discipline. Do I, do I really need to do this? Because look back at verse 15. I mean, Jesus' answer to John's disciples. He says, 
Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. He's already foretelling of his crucifixion. And then they will fast. So he doesn't even tell them fast. He just assumes that they're going to participate in spiritual disciplines. Now, as Christians, yes, we, we do participate in, in spiritual disciplines. Later on, we're going to be taking communion. But it's not to earn points. It's not to, to earn anything because it's already been done. We are acting out of what we have been given, not to earn anything. And when you act out of what you've already been given, out of gratitude, out of just pure rejoicing what you've been giving, your intentions are very different than when you're trying to gain something, when you're trying to do something. And so Jesus is saying, yes, you are going to participate in that, but it's out of what you have been given, not out of what you want to get, not out of coercion, not out of shame, not out of guilt, but just out of pure love and joy and celebration for the righteousness that I'm giving you. I mean, if we don't participate in spiritual disciplines, it's kind of like the husband who marries his wife, his new bride, and he goes, beautiful new bride, I told you once that I love you. If that changes, I'll let you know. Right? Or, you know what, I, I, got a, I got a wife and a job. Why do I need to take care of myself? Right? No, that, that's not what a relationship is. A relationship is continually cultivating that heart. And as Christians, we are continually need to be cultivating that heart, that desperate heart for Jesus. And so out of this, I would ask you to do one thing. I, when you leave here, I would ask you to be, take some time and be a little more self-reflective this week. Ask yourself, why, why do I participate in the spiritual disciplines that I do? And I know all of you do because you're sitting here in church and coming to church is a spiritual discipline. Am I doing the spiritual disciplines because I, out of habit, out of because it's my social network, my friends, because it gives me a position, because I feel like I, that I'm doing something or I'm earning something for God, or is it just out of the pure desperate heart for Jesus. And as we go into communion, I would anyone is welcome at communion. If you call upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to, to, to the communion table to share in it with us. If you don't call on Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I would just ask you to let it pass. But I would also ask if, if you have asked yourself, Lord, what is my heart desperate for? And just, you know what, my heart hasn't been desperate for Jesus. Um, we want to approach communion with, um, in the appropriate manner, as Paul likes to talk about in Corinthians. And if your heart isn't in the appropriate position, which is that desperate heart for Jesus, I would just ask you to let the plate pass. No one's going to question your salvation. No one's going to question. You're not earning anything by participating in communion. But if your heart's just not ready for that, I, you know, we're going to do it again in a month, and we would love to share it then. But just I would encourage you, go ahead and let the plate pass. So let's pray as we um, pass out communion. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gift of your Son. We, we praise you for you are a source of our life and our righteousness through Jesus. Lord, thank you for, for not just patching up the old way, the, the old covenant, but giving us a new covenant which is much greater through your Son, Jesus. Lord, give us a desperate heart for Jesus this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.